So Mark came into my office this week whining, as he's prone to do, about not making enough money being on staff at a church. And I said, Mark, the budget's kind of tight, but I'll see what I can do. So this week when he wasn't around, I had a garage sale. I said, that's not true. We've got a wedding coming up, so if you're wondering, why is the stage so bare? That's the reason. And, uh, you know, every once in a while when we have an opportunity to do what we did this morning to uh, sing songs that we just pick, it reminds me of as a kid growing up when we would get together at my grandparents' house uh, during Christmas or Thanksgiving and all my cousins and aunts and uncles would flood into that one little home. We would fill that place up and we would do the exact same thing. We would take out uh, a hymn book or something and we would pick a song and uh, my uh, Aunt Freda would play the violin, and my grandmother would play the guitar, and my aunt would play the piano, just talented p musicians, and of course, I had absolutely no talent at all, so I would just sing along with everybody else, but that's what that reminds me of, are those times together, and, and it's kind of fun to have a church family like this, where you can take some time to do stuff like that every once in a while, so I hope that you uh, get a sense that that's what families do when they get together, so... We've been working our way through Ephesians and learning as Paul has been urging us to be filled with the Spirit so that we can walk in wisdom, that we might make the most of our time by living our lives in accordance with God's will. And as he's unpacked that for us, he's gotten real practical about what that looks like in our most meaningful relationships. Last week, we talked about the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. This morning, Paul will walk into the relationships within a family between parents and kids, between masters and slaves, and we'll walk through those together. In each of these, what we're going to find is that there is a miraculous outcome built into God's design. And that outcome is this, that as we follow his design, we are transformed into the image of his son. You see, divinely ordained relationships have a sanctifying effect on our life. They shape our life to become more like Christ. That's part of the design. We talked about that in marriage. Let me give you an illustration of what that looks like. Timothy Keller gives this illustration. I think it paints a great picture. He says it's kind of like a bridge. And that bridge has little hairline fractures. So just looking at it at face value, there's nothing wrong. It looks completely normal. But then you drive a 10-ton Mack truck over that bridge, and all of a sudden those fractures begin to open up and be exposed, and you can see them, right? Now, the truck didn't cause the fractures. It just revealed them, right? Well, he talks about that in the same way with marriage. He says, when you get married, your spouse is like a big Mack truck. Now, be careful how far you take that. <laughs> and if you take it too far, just remember, that was Timothy Keller's illustration, not mine. But he's trying to make the point in that marriage, these things are exposed in the stress of life. These hairline fractures in our character, in our habits, in our personality. And by God's design, marriage doesn't create the weakness, although we sometimes blame our spouse for them, don't we? But the fact of the matter is, they've always existed. It's just marriage exposed them. And that's a good thing. That's a sanctifying work because let me ask this question. Would you rather deal with a hairline fracture 
or the collapse of that bridge on the people you love. There's a purpose in God's design. It has a sanctifying effect. It reveals those flaws so that we can take them to the one who forgives and leads and to guide us into restoration and redemption. And we'll see that in all the relationships that God has divinely ordained to help us to become the people that he ultimately created us to be. Doesn't mean it's always easy. Doesn't mean it's always pretty. But if we're following his design, it's always good. And so as we look at what it looks like within the context of marriage and and then again in family and then again in masters and slaves, we need to keep that divine design in mind. There's a good outcome intended when we follow him, when we trust him. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we open up your word again, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We recognize that in and of ourselves, we do not possess the ability to know what is good and right and true. That comes from the work of your spirit and the life and heart of your people so that we can understand and see things that are not possible on our own. Help us understand what it looks like to live within the context of divinely ordained relationships that accomplish a divine goal of transforming our life to become more like you. Help us to see that again this morning, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Let's pick up where we left off last. It begins by saying this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let me pause there and make note of the, fam- the, the obvious, okay? Do you realize that Paul is speaking directly to children? Okay, he's not telling parents to tell children necessarily. He's writing this letter, and when he gets to this point, he expects that the letter be read in a way that it's spoken directly to the children. And, and the reason that is is because they're an important part of a church family. They are personally responsible for their own choices. And he's saying, children, not only do you impact the life of your family, you impact the life of the church. And so if you are a child, and I would put that in the category of anyone from elementary age all the way through high school, then you need to listen up because Paul is speaking directly to you. Children. Obey your parents. Now, I pause there, but you'll notice there's not a period there, right? (laughs) This is not something that Paul is instructing children to do out of reluctant compliance. You've heard me tell the story before about the the young man who had been acting up. His mom finally got frustrated and said, all right, little Johnny, go sit in the corner and have time out. Well, pretty soon after a little while, she looked over at him, and sure enough, he, he was not happy with the whole ordeal. He had his arms crossed, angry eyebrows right? He said, Mommy, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. (laughs) That's not what Paul has in mind here, okay? What Paul has in mind here is obeying your parents, and what does he go on to say? In the Lord, for this is right. It's right to obey your parents because it's right in the eyes of God, and here's why. 
your obedience to your parents is one of the first steps in learning what it means to obey God. Your obedience to your parents really flows out of the understanding of what it means to obey God. And if a child chooses willfully to dishonor their parents, chances are the very same thing will happen in their relationship with God. And it only gets worse in time. Let me show you what that looks like. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 28 with me. Paul is describing just kind of this cascade of events that are increasingly declining into pits of despair. And what he's trying to make the point of is that when people are left to themselves, there's not a good outcome. And he says in verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so they're not willing to follow his design from what we have talked about already, God gave them over to their depraved mind to do these things which are not proper. And let me tell you this. Let me pause this for a moment. I had a conversation with somebody this weekend as we talked about some things that they were working through, and I made this statement, and I believe it's true. I think the worst possible judgment that we can ever have on our lives is for God to look at us and say, okay, have it your way. Please, God, don't ever leave me to myself. It never ends well. But in this case, they were rebellious against God, so his judgment was, okay, then have it your way, and look at what happens. Being filled with an unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, the, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They, do not, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's quite a list, isn't it? <laughs> Right stuck in the middle of that list is what? Disobedience to parents. Because honoring your mom and dad is an issue of a heart. And if you don't obey your parents, chances are your heart will be equally unwilling <laughs> to submit to God. You want to do your own thing. Now, let me say this. In case you haven't figured it out, there are no perfect parents. <laughs> this is on-the-job training, okay? There is no instruction manual. And, and so children are not told to honor their parents because they always get it right because that's simply not true. They're told to honor their parents because it's right in the eyes of God. And you honor Him when you honor them. I think the point that Paul is trying to make here that's important for us to understand is that these two relationships are deeply connected to one another. And what you see in one will be reflected in the other. And so honoring your mom and dad is a way to learn what it means to honor God. Obeying your mom and dad is a way to learn what it means to obey God. Submitting to the authority of your mom and dad is what it means to understand how to submit to the authority of God. The two are deeply connected connected to each other. Look how he continues in verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. 
Paul takes us back to the Ten Commandments, and he emphasizes commandment number five, honor your father and mother. And he says that it's the first commandment with a promise, and that promise is to live a long and fulfilling life. But this is not a Santa Claus theology, all right, where God gives good gifts to all the good little boys and girls. So if you honor your mom and dad, then chances are you'll get the skateboard that you really want to have. That's not what it's saying here. What it's saying is, children, trust in God's design. Even though your parents are not perfect, your heavenly Father is. And this is His idea. These are His instructions. When you submit to your parents, you're learning a very important lesson in life. And it is this. You're learning to align your life with God's will, instead of going your own way. Because the worst possible judgment that can come upon any human being is for God to say, have it your way. And so following God's instruction helps you learn what it means to submit to Him. We're all born with the selfish desire to do our own thing because we feel that the world revolves around me. I mean, just look at infants, right? They cry when they're hungry. They they scream when they're upset. And what do they do when something doesn't go their way? They throw a big fit, right? Which is okay when you're a baby. Not okay when you're an adult. But if you haven't learned within the context of that divinely ordained relationship between children and parents, you carry that on into adulthood. And you end up losing a job. You end up losing a marriage. You end up losing a family because you want it your way. Honor your parents. It teaches you to trust in God because obeying your parents is the first step in learning what it means to obey God. If you rebel against your parents, there's a very high likelihood that you will do the very same thing in your relationship with God. And as we've seen in that passage in Romans chapter 1, it never ends well. When we rebel against God, it never, ever ends well. There's a purpose in God's design, and it's intended to lead us to what is good and right and true. Trust Him on that. Your parents may not be perfect, but your Heavenly Father is. So trust Him on that. Look at verse 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To exasperate, exasperate means to uh, promote or provoke someone to anger or wrath. It, it's spoken directly to, to fathers because they have the responsibility in the home given to them within the headship of that relationship. We learned that when we talked about the marriage relationship. They have ultimate responsibility in the home, but not ultimate control. And that's where the problem comes in. Because fathers exasperate their children when they try to rule with an iron fist. When they wrongly assume that they have the power to change their child's heart. And so in doing so, they become overly critical, unreasonable, unrelenting in their effort to cause a behavior that is never theirs to create in the first place. 
And if they push hard enough and long enough, at times they become frustrated to the point of saying, I give up. And they disengage altogether. They're quick to discipline, slow to disciple. And that is not the biblical picture of parenting. In fact, let's look at what that picture is. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Back in the fall, when we had our family conference, this was the passage that we centered that on because it does a great job of describing or giving us a picture of what biblical parenting is intended to look like. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, which I have commanded you today, shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's a picture of biblical parenting because it's a picture that's taking advantage of every foreseeable, teachable moment that might exist in the life of a family. Some of your best conversations are late at night when your child says, hey dad, I have a question. Son, it's 1030 at night. You can't ask that question now. No, you need to listen to that question because that may be the very most important question that they have to ask of you. It's when you rise up. It's when you go out. It's when you're driving somewhere. Where you're going is insignificant. The conversation you have on the way isn't. Every moment being a teachable moment. We need to understand that our influence not only in what we say, but more importantly, how we live. Biblical parenting depends on God's word relies on God's strength, rightly acknowledging that only God can change a person's heart. And so you've heard me say this before, and I've learned through experience for it to be absolutely true. As parents, I believe we do our very best parenting on our knees. Because we are acknowledging in that posture that the only ones who can change their heart is the one that we are praying to. And so help us understand what it means to lead them in a way that honors Him. Ultimately, if we want our kids to lead a long and fulfilling life, our goal is to lead them to Jesus Christ. And not only what we say, but so they can see that relationship being lived out in their parents. How they handle hard times. How they go to God's Word how they are deeply connected into community. Let everything they see tell them this is the most important thing that exists in our life is our walk with Jesus Christ. We are utterly dependent upon Him. This weekend, uh, my oldest nephew graduated from Lubbock High along with others, um, 500 others, in fact. But one of the things that my brother Shannon gave to his son Tyler was I think a gift that will be precious to him for years to come. And he just spoke life into his son's heart by telling him the truths of God that he's learned by walking in fellowship and trusting him. And it was through hard times. 
It was through good times. But he wanted his son to know that the long and fulfilling life that you desire to have as you enter into college can only be found when you live your life fully committed to Jesus Christ. That's biblical parenting. Okay, now Paul continues. But before we do, turn to Ephesians chapter 6 again. We're going to enter a section where Paul's talking about slaves and masters, and I, I think it's really important for us to understand what this meant within the context of the Roman Empire compared to what we naturally think of in our own American history, okay? When we hear that word, slaves and masters, and I need to tell you, it's not the same thing, okay? So we need to under, understand and appreciate that. One of the things that's interesting is that as much as one-third of the population during the Roman Empire at any given time were slaves. That's because it was a position in society that was not based on ethnicity, which is a significant difference from what we saw in our own American history. In fact, people could sell themselves into slavery and then later regain their freedom. Slaves in this culture were very educated. They were very skilled, highly trained individuals in many cases. Very often, they took on the social status of the person that they worked for. And so, although it's not a direct correlation, I would go as far as to say what slave and masters look like in the Bible is much more correlated to what we see with employees, employers in today's society. What Paul is doing here is he's speaking to yet another example of a relationship where there is authority and submission that is ordained by God. And so let's keep that in mind as we read through these verses. Verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, for fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, within any structure in society, there are roles of authority and submission. We see that in government. We see it in the military. As we've gone through, we've seen it in the marriage relationship. We've seen it in the family relationship. We know that it exists in the church. And it certainly exists in our workplace as well. These roles of authority and submission are what Paul is speaking to. And he's calling Christians to honor those who are in authority, whatever that context may be. And I want you to notice that he did not give that instruction with qualifiers. He didn't say honor those in authority unless they don't do a good job and then you don't have to worry about it. Or unless you can do a better job and then do it your own way. That's not what he said. It's not what he said in the marriage relationship. It's not what he said in the family relationship. And it's not what he's saying here in a workplace relationship. He says Christians, servants, should submit to authority with fear and trembling. That's an interesting term, but it's often used in Scripture to describe respect or reverence. And that's what it means here. So to put it more simply, it's saying employees respect your employer or employees respect your boss. Those who are serving respect those in authority. One of the reasons I believe that's the case is because servants or those who work for somebody usually have a unique insight into the life and integrity of that person, don't they? And they're saying, you need to protect that information. 
you need to be respectful of that. We've all got flaws. So don't take it upon yourself to learn those flaws of someone else and then broadcast it to everyone else. That's known as gossip. And it's not consistent with God's design. Instead, Paul says, serve with sincerity of heart as to Christ. That word sincerity means a single heart. It's a undivided loyalty. It's the exact opposite of betrayal or hypocrisy. In other words, don't be kind to your boss's face and then tell everybody what a jerk he is when he's not around. Be respectful. Be sincere. Understand that ultimately you don't work for your boss. You work for God. And you want your actions to honor him. Because in the end, whether it is a marriage relationship, whether it's the relationship between parents and kids, how you relate to someone in authority is a reflection of how you relate to God. And it should always flow out of that relationship that you have with Christ. See, very often, those who struggle with submitting to authority have the very same issue of submitting to God. Pride becomes a barrier to faithful service. They're obedient only when it benefits them. Instead of seeking God, they work for the applause of men. They long to be recognized for their contribution. They become offended when things don't go their way or they're not given the approval that they think they deserve. What Paul describes in verse 6 as eye service of men pleasers. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The eye service of men pleasers. One of the thoughts that immediately came to my mind when I read that was sixth grade gym class. <laughs> You'll know what I'm talking about when you have this picture in your mind of all of the boys on the ground with the coach walking around saying, all right, give me 20 push-ups. When the coach is looking, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. When the coach is not looking, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> the point is, is when authority is on looking at you, you're doing it exactly like you're supposed to do. But as soon as they turn away, you slack off. And Paul has that picture in mind. He's reminding us, we're not working to please men. We're working to please God. And there's never a time that he does not see. And so what he's telling us is to do what's right in the eyes of God. To serve with respectful sincerity, even when no one else is looking. Christians should not be motivated by getting the credit. They should be motivated by doing good. Look at verse 7. It says, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, as a Christian. I want my service to be a blessing to the one I serve. That's the only choice I have if I follow what this is saying in doing the will of God from the heart. <laughs> because that's the example I'm called to father, follow in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom. His goal in life was to bring glory to the Father. Not your will be done, not my will be done, but your will be done. And the same should be true for you and I as well. In a sense, Paul is calling Christians to, to serve in a way that puts the gospel on display. Doing good by submitting to the will of God. 
just like Jesus did. Considering the needs of someone else is more important than our own, just like Jesus did. Giving ourselves not for an earthly reward, but a heavenly promise, just like Jesus did. Even when we do that in the midst of difficult circumstances, just like Jesus did. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame, endured the cross, knowing that he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Consider his example so that you can go and do the same and not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we're being called to. Now look at how he continues in verse 9. And masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. This single verse turns the value system on the, of the world on its head. Because in the world's economy, our value is based on our social status. We give rewards based on levels of success. That's why doctors make more than nurses. Why bank presidents make more than bank tellers. And so if we adopt the world's philosophy, our goal in life is somehow to work ourselves to the top. Because that's where we find our value and purpose in life. And we'll serve as long as we can use it for leverage to get to the next rung in the ladder. See, if we accept the world's philosophy, that's our goal. We work hard for our greater gain instead of the good of someone else. But that's not how it works in God's economy. In fact, it's just the opposite. What does he say? The first shall be and the last shall be. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The one who serves. That's God's economy. From God's perspective, there's no social status We've learned already, as we've said many times, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. So our value is not based on our ethnicity, on our gender, on our social status. That's why the instructions that Paul gives to the master are the very same thing he gives to the slave because in God's eyes, they're the very same. There is no difference. In the end, we are all slaves to Christ. The goal of the master is to do good for the slave, just as it is for the slave to do for the master. And, and if God sin, ten, uh, has in his mind to, to bless the master, he does so with the intent for the master to use that blessing for the benefit of those who are serving him. And the greater the blessing, the greater the giving. That's the intent. There is no authority on the face of the earth that supersedes the authority of God. Everyone, everyone is held accountable to how they treat others. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, the ones who have positions of authority are held to a stricter judgment. It's true in the home. It's true in the church. It's true anywhere. Because he who has been given much has expected much. I think our goal in life, regardless of whatever role we have, is to do good for those that we serve. There's a great passage in Micah 6, 8. I know you've heard it before. It's talking about what it means to do good, and I think it fits with what we've been talking about. It says, 
He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, and it's this, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the mission statement of a Christian, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Which brings me to my final point. Look at again at uh, chapter 4, verse 21. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago where it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So regardless of whatever role we may have, we have a shared responsibility, and that is to serve one another, to do justly, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. Undergirding everything we do, regardless of our role, is a heart to serve. You see, our God has ordained roles, but those roles don't determine our worth. They simply define our responsibility. And undergirding all those responsibilities is a humble heart to serve. A life that puts the message of the gospel on display. Remember, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Now, as Kerry mentioned as he prayed this morning, what we celebrate this weekend is significant, and I don't ever want to underestimate, undervalue the sacrifice that people have made when they've given their life in defense of the freedoms that we share in this country. That's no small sacrifice. And, and in many ways, it's an example of what we've just been doing, talking about, right? They have done one of the greatest goods that you could ever ask of somebody for our good, the benefactor of that sacrifice. So when we think about what it means to be faithful in service, that's a good example of what it looks like. But as we recognize that sacrifice that they made for our freedom, let us not forget the sacrifice that was made for our salvation. That is ultimately the example we are called to follow. And everything that we've talked about, this whole section, should point to him. And we could summarize the whole message of the passage by saying, go and live in a way that honors God by following the example of Jesus Christ, who came not to be served but to serve, who washed his disciples' feet, which was nobody's job, certainly not his and then tells them, go and do the same, right? So let's keep that in mind. That's our ultimate example, and that's what we're called to follow. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we consider the very practical application of what it means to honor you, to walk wisely, to be filled with the Spirit, that we see that being lived out in the marriage relationship, in the family relationship, in the workplace relationship, and in every example, you have taught us that how we live is an overflow, a reflection of our relationship with you. And if we struggle with submission to authority, chances are pride stands in the way of our relationship with you. If we struggle with obeying our parents, chances are we struggle in our obedience to you. Father, may we live in a way that our goal is not to work our way to the top, to not ascribe to the values of the world's economy, but instead to consider the words of the Bible and the example of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. Where the greatest in the kingdom is the least, 
Father, may we be faithful to serve you by serving the needs of others is more important than our own. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our example. Amen. Have a great day.